Now, if you would, please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Rather than parachuting in on verse 16, and especially for those of you who have not been here on Sunday morning of late, I want us to reread chapter 3 beginning in verse 1 and ending in verse 15. We've spent a couple of messages there, but I want us to reacquaint ourselves and do just a bit of a brief review of what the context is here for chapter 3, verse 16. Beginning in verse 1 of John 3, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews. That means he was a part of the Sanhedrin, which was a small ruling party of the Jews. Sort of like um, the Jews' elected officials to run the country, to take care of the government. And Nicodemus, being an old man himself, by his own testimony, when he is old, was someone who was apparently a very key figure in this ruling party. In fact, so key that Jesus refers to him as one of the teachers in Israel, one of the most prominent ones, one of the greater spokesmen of the group. And being this teacher of Israel... Nicodemus needed to know a few things of what Jesus was referring. Jesus, of course, told him, if you want to see the kingdom, if you want to be a part of the kingdom, then you must be born again. Or, as I told you over the last couple of weeks, born from above. It could have either translation. And I prefer the idea of that phrase being born from above because the essence of what Jesus is teaching Nicodemus and therefore all of us is that unless a person is born through the ministry of God the Holy Spirit from above, 
That is, that it is a supernatural work, that it consists in a new birth, an entirely new change in the disposition of the individual, then they cannot see the kingdom of God. They cannot know God. They can't be a part of the family of God. They can't pray to God. They can't worship God. They can't know Him as God, God the Father, unless they're born from above. And Nicodemus did not understand what Jesus was teaching. He acknowledged him as a rabbi, even though Jesus did not have himself formal rabbinic training. And Jesus knew that Nicodemus did. And yet Jesus was taking the offensive. He was telling Nicodemus what Nicodemus needed to do, as well as the other ruling party of Israel and Israel itself. And what he told him was very, very clear. Or at least it should have been clear in the mind of Nicodemus. You say, how so? Well, because there were a number of prophets, Isaiah being one, Jeremiah being another, and Ezekiel being yet another, who would have shown Nicodemus through his reading, through his studying, and through his understanding of those prophets, and surely he had read them many, many times, that the idea of being born again was none other than the concept of what Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel says that God will do in the new covenant age, and that is that he will take out the heart of stone among individuals, even those Jews, and that he would replace it with a heart of flesh, a heart of palpability, a heart of being supple to the things of God. These Jews, so many of them, the majority of them in fact, had not really known God because their hearts were hearts of stone. They believed that in order to be a part of the kingdom, you simply had to be born into it because you were a child of Abraham. And in order to stay in the kingdom of God, you simply had to follow the rules and the statutes and the dictates of the Lord. And if you were to do that, then you would continue to be a part of the kingdom of God. And of course, we all know that no self-respecting Jew, in fact, no person at all in the entire world could ever follow all of the rules, all of the statutes, all of the precepts, all of the dictates of God's word and expect by those actions, by that level of obedience to completely and fully and perfectly obey all of the law of God. In fact, what the law of God does is it doesn't show you that you are a part of the kingdom. It actually shows you by your disobedience to them how sinful you really are. And Nicodemus did not understand that. He did not grasp that. He did not realize that Jesus was saying, in order for you to obey God's law, in order for you to be a part of the kingdom of God, you have to recognize the bankruptcy of your own spirit. You have to recognize the brokenness of your own heart with regard to following God's law. What you have to say is something like this, I can't follow God's law. It is too much for me. Every time I turn around, I'm breaking one aspect of the law of God. And of course, what James says in his epistle, if you've broken one part of the law of God, you've broken it all. And Nicodemus assumed as a self-righteous Jew 
that he had followed the law of God. Even the Apostle Paul says about himself in Philippians chapter 3, as to the law, at least outwardly, found blameless. And Paul, on the Damascus Road, had to be confronted through the person of Jesus in that vision, showing him that he was a persecutor of God and that he too wasn't following perfectly the law of God and that he needed to be confronted with the idea that he was a violator of the law of God and that he was a persecutor of Christians. And Nicodemus had to understand the same thing in this portion of Scripture and about his own life. I cannot follow God's law. It is too great for me. There are too many laws for me to follow perfectly. And the only way for me as a self-respecting Jew, as a person who says he's a follower of Yahweh God, is to acknowledge that what Jesus is saying is true and that I need to be born from above. I need the Holy Spirit to <clears throat> excuse me, wash out the heart of my old, sinful, wicked, wretched life and through the water of the Word, the cleansing of the Word of God, to remake me and renew me and reinvigorate me with regard to the knowledge that I am a sinner, that I need forgiveness, that I cannot follow the law of God on my own and within my own capacity, and that I must be born again. And three times in this section... Jesus endeavored to teach him this truth and three times Nicodemus said, I don't know what you're talking about. How can these things be? How can I enter into my mother's womb a second time when I am old? And it was at that point that John the Apostle ends the dialogue with Nicodemus and John the Apostle now brings us to the truth that this is the message of the gospel. John 3.16. Read it with me. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. You might be able to say that this is the summation of the account of Jesus' dialogue with Nicodemus. For what John attempts to do in his writings in this gospel is to show everyone, not just Nicodemus, and not just the Jews of the ruling party, and not just the nation of Israel, but for everyone in the world, the totality of every man, woman, and child, that this is the essence of what happens to you when you believe. This is what happens to you when you are born again born from above. And if you would allow me, I'd like for us to take three outline points and discuss verse 16. We'll look at verse 16a, verse 16b, and then verse 16c. And I want to show you three great truths about the gospel in miniature as explained to us in John 3.16. The first one is this. Let's call it the grandeur of God. The grandeur of God. Notice the first part of John 3.16. For God so loved the world. That's the title of our message this morning. For God so loved the world. 
Now, if you look back at chapter 1, I want to remind you of verses 12 and 13. God so loved the world that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come into the world and specifically into the Jewish world of that incarnational day. And John records it in this manner. John 1.11 He, referring to Jesus, came to his own and his own people, the Jews, the nation of Israel, did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. He gave the right to become children of God, not by anything that we do, but of God, being born again of God, being born from above by God. That's how John actually starts in the very first chapter of his gospel and what he means when he says here in chapter 3, through the lips of Jesus, that you must be born again. And the one thing that I want you to see out of John chapter 1 there in verse 11, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Unfortunately, tragically, most of those during the days of Jesus' earthly pilgrimage in the land of Palestine were rejectors of the Lord Jesus. Did you notice there it says in verse 11 that he came to his own and his own received him not. They did not receive him. And if you look in chapter 2, you'll find out that after Jesus cleansed the temple... In verse 23, it says, Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, referring again to Jesus, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus becomes then the representative, the representative man of the nation of Israel who were rejectors of the Lord Jesus. Oh, it does say, yes it does, that they believed in him, but not because of his gospel word, not because of the good news that he was proclaiming about the kingdom of God, but because of the signs that he was doing. There were multiple signs that Jesus had already performed in Israel, around Jerusalem, and there were enough Jews who saw it, and there was enough of a stirring of the crowd. Who is this man? Is he a prophet? Is he one of old? Is he Moses incarnate? Is he the one who is going to come and deliver us from our Roman oppression? And when they saw the signs, when they saw the miraculous deeds of Jesus, they assumed he might be that one of Deuteronomy who would be coming and doing the signs and wonders as Moses did in former days. But the one thing that they did not count on was a teaching from Jesus like this to Nicodemus, that you must be born from above. And what Jesus was doing in that moment was showing Nicodemus and the nation of Israel 
that if you're going to be a part of the kingdom of God, it's going to be as a result of something you can't do on your own. You can't do it on your own. You can't do enough good works. You can't give enough money. You can't pray enough prayers. You cannot help enough needy people in order to qualify for entrance into the kingdom of God. The truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ is this. You can't do it. And yet God has done it all in the person of Jesus the Christ. And we better listen. We better listen to his message. And we better follow his teaching word, not just simply the signs and miracles that he was performing, but what he was actually teaching. And he says three times here, verse 5, truly, truly, that's the word, amen, amen. Let it stand firm. Let it stand firm. And then he says again, verse 11, truly, truly, I say to you. This is a, an amen and amen of profound implications. And that's why he says to Nicodemus in verse 7, do not be surprised or stop being surprised or do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. I'm telling you simply what the prophets told you of old, that you can't save yourself. You can't remain a part of the kingdom of God unless you realize that you cannot do it in and of yourself. You don't have the capacity You don't have the wherewithal to be a person who is perfect. That's why God, according to John 1, sent someone else, yea, His own Son, to dwell among His people and to do for them what they could not do for themselves. And what did Jesus do? He lived a perfect life. He died an agonizing death. And He rose from the dead. And He was the one Jew the one person in the entire history of Israel who performed perfectly the law of God. And therefore, he was the only one who was able to lay claim to the fact that I have descended from heaven and I will ascend to heaven and I will reveal to you the Father because He sent me, and when He sent me, I obeyed perfectly the law of God, and I am the one qualified, the only one qualified, to die an ignominious death on that cross, so that in my dying, my life would be a sacrifice for sinners. My friends, that's the essence of what's going on here in John 3.16. And do you know what the grandeur of it all really is. For God so loved the world. And what kind of world are we talking about? Is it, is it as it were, God loving this beautiful, wonderful, sinless, perfect world? Not at all. God didn't love the world because it was so big. He loved the world, Don Carson says, because it was so bad. Look at verse 17 of John 3. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. That's the heart of God. That's the love of God. Whoever believes in Him, verse 18, is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already 
because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. That light, the light of the Son of God, the light that is the person of Jesus, and the people, what? Loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. That's John 1.11. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. His own, they were a part of the darkness and the darkness did not love the light. The darkness hated the light. Verse 21, but whoever does what is true comes to the light. That's John 1.12. There were some who came to him and it was to them he gave the right, the privilege, the honor, the opportunity to be born again and to receive the light. But whoever does What is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God, wrought in God. You see, the only reason that if any of us who claim Christ that we're Christians are so, because we've been born again, God's created new life in us from above, and when we do any good deeds, any good works, it is as though we're doing them as the very opportunity to show everyone that our life has been wrought, brought about, brought to us in God. God has done it. God has brought us to a place of doing any of those works whatsoever. And upon what basis are we ever able to say such a thing? The first part of John 3.16, For God so loved the world. Are you not so very thankful that even in the midst of a wicked world, even in the midst of coming out of the womb as a sinner, for that is truly what the Bible teaches, that you and I live under new ways and new avenues to sin, to do what is wicked and evil in the sight of God, and to be doing that because our very natures are evil, our our very lives are wicked, and we do what we do and we sin in the way we do because that's who we are. That's the very warp and woof of our being. And even being that kind of person, as we all are, God so loved the world. That's why I call it the grandeur of God. That even in the midst of vile, wretched sinners, God has nevertheless in his heart, desired to love the world. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5, and I'll show you this love of God. This is a wonderful gospel truth. In Romans 5, 5, Paul also affirms the love of God. And here's what he says. Romans 5, 5, And hope does not put us to shame, Because of this, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Do you love that phrase? God's love has been poured into our hearts. It wasn't because we were so lovely. It wasn't because we deserved the love of God. 
It wasn't because we merited anything except the righteous wrath of God. But in God's great love, John 3.16a, for God so loved the world. He wanted to put the grandeur of His love on display in the world. And He did so in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's why Romans 5.8 says, But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For God so loved the world, and even in that, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God wasn't waiting for us to clean up our act. God wasn't waiting until the world would just get better and better and better. We all know that the world is getting worse and worse and worse. And the comprehensive nature of the sinfulness of mankind is is catapulting itself into judgment, the sure judgment of the great day. And if God were to wait until we got our acts together as sinners, He would be waiting for all eternity and it would never happen. So God decided in time, because of His plan, to inject into the world through the incarnation of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to deal with the sinner's of this world. And that's the second point of John 3:16. Let's call it the gift of God. Not only the grandeur of God, but secondly, the gift of God. God being motivated by his love, being motiva- motivated by setting his love on display for the world to see, he did something. He gave us something. And John 3.16 says it this way, For God so loved the world that He gave. See the word gave there? The gift of God. And what is that gift? He says it this way, He gave His only Son. Now that is a translation that is acceptable, of course, but it is a translation that needs so much more said about it. Because really, the translation should be something like this. For God so loved the world that He gave His one-of-a-kind Son of His love. His one-of-a-kind Son of His love. That really captures the essence of what it means there. You might have a Bible translation that says, He gave His only begotten Son. And that may be how you memorize John 3.16, as so many of us have. And the word begotten doesn't do justice to the idea of what is going on here. What John is saying is that God gave, in the person of Jesus Christ, His one and only, His unique Son, the Son of His love. That's monogenes. That's the idea of what happened way, way back in Genesis when there was this son who was being given up by Abraham, Abram at the time. And when Isaac was on that altar, Abram was willing to give up his son. And the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, says he was willing to give up his one-of-a-kind son of his love. And of course we know what happened there. 
just as that knife blade was coming down into the heart of his one-of-a-kind son of his love, God stopped him and God spared that son. And that Isaac who was spared was spared because of God's goodness and because of his promise to Abram. Now fast forward to the time of Jesus on the cross. And when Jesus was on that cross, the Father, because he so loved the world, and to display the grandeur of his love, did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all. And that's why Paul says in Romans, if he did not spare his own Son, will he not with him give us freely all things? You know, that's the argument from the greater to the lesser. If God has given you everything, the greatest act, the greatest superlative, the greatest gift, the greatest gift that could ever be given, and that gift was the death of His Son so that you and I might be forgiven of our sins. If He's done the greater thing, is there any question about God doing every lesser thing for us? No. No question at all. If He's given you the greater then all the lesser gifts that you need, He will give to you. God gave the gift of His one-of-a-kind Son of His love. He did not spare Him for you and for me. That's why when Nicodemus was in this dialogue with Jesus and undoubtedly heard this teaching that I'm giving you today, Hundreds, if not thousands of times, not only from the lips of our Lord and His teaching ministry, but, for the, but from the apostles and from those who legitimately believed in the name of the Son of God, Nicodemus over and over and over again heard the message that for so God loved the world that He gave the Son of His love, the unique one, didn't spare Him the death that He died, didn't prevent Him from going to the cross to bear our shame and our agony and our wickedness and our sinful hearts on that tree, but He gave Him for us. The only way that anyone will ever spend eternity in hell is because they reject that message. And that's why people love the darkness, John says, rather than the light. That's why people hate the light. They hate the light coming to them. And they reject the gift. Now, of course, if you're a Christian, you're saying in your heart right now, undoubtedly, how could anyone reject? How could anyone say no to the gift of the perfect life, Jesus Christ, satisfying the righteous demands of God for the sin of my life? How could someone reject receiving the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for the wicked, sinful life that I'm living and that God would accept Christ's righteous life and His sacrificial death on my behalf so that my wicked, sinful life could be totally forgiven by God and me being on my way to heaven. How could anybody refuse that? How could anybody say no to that? 
It's a gift. Paul says in Romans 5, it's a free gift. And it's the free gift of righteousness. The righteousness of Christ for the unrighteousness of my life. The life of Christ for my death in Christ. The forgiving word of Christ for my need for forgiveness. How could anybody refuse? Here's John's answer. They refuse because they love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Now, if Nicodemus would have said, okay, I tell you what, I hear your teaching and I receive it. Tell me what I must do. And that's undoubtedly what so many of the Jews continued to say. So what should I do? Even in John chapter 6, they said, what must we do to do the works of God? They still said, well, what am I going to do? How can I do it? What works can I perform? And over and over and over again, they are taught, not only in this gospel, but in the whole of the New Testament, there is no work for you to perform. Turn over in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. And this may be one of the clearest places in all of our New Testaments that says it in as succinct a way as it can possibly be said. We've been learning this on Sunday nights. Chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's our, that's our biography, folks. That's true of every one of us. We're dead in our trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, Satan himself, being a son of disobedience, among whom Paul says, verse 3, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That is not a pretty picture, my friends. And yet what does verse 4 say? But God, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love, there it is again, The great love with which He loved us. For God so loved the world. This love is so great and His mercy is so rich that even when we were dead in our trespasses, He, God, made us alive together with Christ. That's being born from above. That's being born again. That's being given new birth, new life. By grace you have been saved. Not works, grace and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For all eternity, we're going to be shown the richness of the mercy of Christ and the love of God shown to us in Christ. And then verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through what? Faith. Belief. Belief in Christ. Belief in the work of Christ on the cross. Belief in what He did. Not works. And so that no one will be confused, Paul says, and this is not your own doing. Someone says, what can I do? What is it that I have to do? Do I have to walk an aisle? Do I have to sign a card? Do I have to give money to the poor? Do I have to do 40 Hail Marys? Do I have to walk up... uh, flight of stairs on my knees 
and, and cause bleeding? Is, is it self-flagellation? Oh, what is it? Is it multitudinous prayers? Is it giving away all that I have? What is it? He says, it's not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's the gift of God. The grandeur of God is His love, His love for the world. And the gift of God is His Son. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Because if someone were to boast, even in the infinitesimal, smallest particle of works, we'd glory in it. That's our nature. We want to glory in something that we did to merit that response on the part of the heart of God. And yet it isn't so. The only thing that we can boast is this. I boast in the cross of Christ. I boast that it is something He did, not something I did. It's not something that I do. It's something that I receive. And I receive this gift by faith. So the grandeur of God, the gift of God, and thirdly and finally, let's call it the granting of God. The granting of God. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. You say, well, it says I should believe in Him. That doesn't sound like something that God is granting. It's something I'm doing. I'm believing. But did you know that even that belief, faith, trust, reliance is itself the gift of God? That's why Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, it's the gift of God that you are saved through faith. It's all the gift of God. The only reason that you believe, the only reason that I believe is because God caused me to be born again from above and He gave me, granted me, the gift of faith, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, so that I would believe. Because if He hadn't granted it to me, I would never believe. I would constantly be working the works not of belief and faith, but of darkness. And yet, I was granted that belief. Look at chapter 6 of John's Gospel. This was the very words that Christ Himself spoke later. There were those who were taking offense at what He was saying, including the idea of eating His flesh and drinking His blood, a metaphor for affirming His death and the giving of His blood on the cross. And He says in verse 61 of chapter 6, Do you take offense at this? then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. And it's the same thing He told Nicodemus. What is of flesh is flesh, but what is of spirit is spirit. The Holy Spirit does His work. The flesh is of no avail. And then He says, The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. In the very words that I speak, in the very embodiment of who I am, I speak truth, I speak life. He says, but there are some of you who do not, who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe. That sounds a lot like John too. He, he did not entrust Himself to them because He knew what was in man, right? He knew from the beginning those who did not believe and who it was who would betray Him. That's Judas. 
And then verse 65, And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Who grants? Who grants life? Who grants? Who is it? God the Father. Say, why do I ask you three times who grants life? Because in our natural condition, in our unredeemed condition, we want to still hold on to the idea that I've got to do something. I've got to do something myself. There's got to be something that I do. There's got to be something that I contribute. There's got to be something that I will do so that it merits some level of satisfaction in God. And God says, I will not be satisfied unless I be lifted up through the Son of Man and that I do the granting of spiritual life in the souls of the dead ones. That way, He's granted all the glory. That way, He gets all the credit. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 30 and 31, so that no one may boast... It is by the doing of God. It's by the granting of God. And that's why he says here in John chapter 3, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, the only Son of His love, the only unique one, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And who is it? To believe in Him, those to whom He grants belief. Those to whom He grants faith. You say, wow, I mean, so I don't do anything? Yes, here is what you do. You believe in Him who sent Jesus. That's what He says. What must I do to do the works of God? Believe in Him whom He has sent. That's what you do. You believe. And all of your believing is being given as a praise back to God. Thank you for giving me belief. Thank you for granting me eternal life. And here's the option. Here's the alternative. I reject. I do not believe. And John 3.16 says, and you will perish. Perishing death or eternal life. What's your choice? Perishing death, which is a kind of life But it's the worst kind of life because it will be a mass of humanity who will be spending eternity in a hell of existence apart from Christ, apart from His love, apart from the exaltation of the Father, apart from the goodness of the Son in coming and dying on that cross, and apart from the Holy Spirit granting from above that new life in Christ, and you will be there with all of the rest of those who are living out the ignominious pride of life and who are arrogant and boastful and who also gnash their teeth and who also love the darkness because their deeds are evil. And that, my friends, is a perishing death life. What you want, what your soul longs for, what you need is eternal life and that by the granting of God. Oh, this one verse, the grandeur of God, for God so loved the world, 
the gift of God, that He gave His only one of a kind Son of His love, that whoever believes in Him, the granting of God should not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, this is, this is the message of the Gospel. This is the message of truth. And may it be the truth that opens the eyes of the blind even this day. And if there are eyes that have already been opened to this truth, may it be to Your praise and Your wonder and Your glory and Your magnification to say in a moment, right now, in our hearts, thank You. Thank You. I would never have believed had You not granted me the opportunity. I would never know spiritual life if You had not granted new birth. And I would not know this Son of Your love, the only unique one, if You hadn't revealed Him to me. Oh, Father, I pray that there would be no one here who would be loving the darkness and rejecting the light. May they open their hearts even now to the person of Jesus because they've been born from above even this day and who love the light rather than the darkness. We pray in Jesus' matchless name. Amen.